HR from the global office was there that day, just kind of unannounced, had no idea why. Sets us all down in the conference room. Meanwhile, my phone is just going crazy. It's just buzzing because I'd set up text notifications every time someone signed up for Cloud Campaign, this like brand new idea that I had, this website. And I'm sitting there and my phone's just buzzing away. And meanwhile, HR is handing out these packets saying that our entire office is getting laid off. And we have like a severance package and we have essentially three months to kind of finish the integration of our existing product into a new office that was in Vancouver that was taking over ownership of our product. That was kind of like push come to shove where I had this idea and I was like, yeah, like maybe one day I'll pursue it. And then HR says, hey, by the way, this entire office is fired. Here's a severance package. And like, thanks for all the hard work over the past couple of years. <laughs> Welcome to today's episode of Money Self-Made. I just want to give you a heads up before we get started. We are going to be renaming the show to Invested Success. So if you've been searching for the show, that's what you're going to need to search from from now on is Invested Success. The good news is, is if you hit that subscribe button, you won't need to do any of that searching and you will never miss another episode. So before we get started, make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you happen to listen and smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube. We can get started in introducing today's guest, Ryan Bourne, successful Series A founder of a SaaS startup company. So try to say that three times fast. Ryan is an incredible inspiration. From the first day I met him, we worked together because I use his tool. I'm a huge fan of it. And there are a ton of tremendous business lessons to be learned in this conversation. Ryan is really inspirational. I can't believe he not only bootstrapped this business from scratch, but then decided he wanted to take it to the next level of monetization and do rounds of funding. So we dive into all of that and more in today's episode. So I'm really excited to welcome Ryan on the show. Please join me in giving Ryan a warm welcome and let's get started. I know you because we're typically having video calls where you teach me how to use your product cloud campaign, which I love. For those at home who maybe don't know who you are, do you want to give us kind of like the two minute version of your life so far? Yeah, happy to. I'll give you the, the expedited version. So I studied software engineering. So I'm a software engineer by trade, joined a startup shortly out of college. It was kind of my accelerated MBA where we got acquired after joining, like six months after joining. And then that acquiring company went public about two years after that. And that was, yeah, my crash course into what startups are and how to run a business. And so decided, hey, I think I could do this. Let me go try and start my own company. So started Cloud Campaign back in 2017, was a solo founder initially, brought on a co-founder about 12 months into it. And then about two and a half years into the journey, ended up going the VC route, raised a small angel round. We're now a team of 25. We've raised three rounds of funding and growing pretty quickly. So it's been a, a fun, exciting journey. That is so great. Congratulations. I hear that raising is not an easy task, but I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show as well because I've had a couple of bootstrappers and they also, I've had some people who have raised. So I really love hearing about that process. Did you bootstrap in the beginning? And like, when did you decide to switch? Yeah, so we bootstrapped for the first two and a half years and then decided to, to raise money. And I think what we realized is that there's a bigger opportunity for what we're building. I think initially we weren't sure if, it could be a venture backed business. I think it's a common misconception. I think a lot of founders think, 
oh, I'm starting a startup. I need to raise money. Like, no, most startups should not raise money. It's actually a really poor model for most startups. The economics just don't make sense. Like if you think about a return that a VC firm needs, it really limits your optionality as a founder in terms of what you can do. So like a good example is for folks that are like in the indie slash kind of startup scene, they probably know Josh Pigford, who started Bear Metrics. He sold his company earlier this year for $3 million, which for him being a solo founder, owning 100% of the equity, it's a great outcome. Like that's a life-changing amount of money for anyone. And he's able to now kind of retire and just focus on hobbies that he enjoys. If you take VC money, you can't exit for $3 million. There's no way your partner at the VC firm is going to support that because that's a, a loss for them, right? Like they need 10, 20 X returns that are going to return the entire fund with one, one exit. And so unless that's like a possibility with your company, unless that's something you're interested in, it really doesn't make sense to raise VC money. So I, I didn't really see that path forward until maybe like a year and a half into the business. Initially, I was thinking it's not going to be that large of a business. The market's pretty saturated. Like there's enough companies that are already out there. Let's just keep bootstrapped and like we'll grow slowly and it'll be like a nice lifestyle business. And then I think a couple of years in, talked to some advisors that we had met and they're like, you don't really realize how good of an opportunity you have. Like you guys have a really good foothold in this market that's very fragmented. There's no clear market leader. Like no one really is building the solution for marketing agencies. You guys should go raise money and do it. And so that was kind of the, the flip for us where it's like, okay, like there actually is a bigger opportunity here. This could be a VC backed business. We could be the ones to kind of define what the marketing agency space should look like from a product perspective. Like, let's go raise the money and try and do that. That's really an incredible story. Super impressive. Do you prefer like VC in terms of having kind of like that extra cushion so you can outsource things to teams or do you prefer bootstrapping between the two? I would say VC. I mean, if the business has the economics for the VC model, it's really nice to have that additional capital to grow the team a lot quicker. You know, especially for us, we're in a space where there are now two public companies as well as a handful of companies that are private that are valued at over a billion dollars. So we have some pretty stiff competition, but by having VC money, we're able to kind of compete at the same level and hire talent that otherwise would be really hard to get. Because that's another thing that's worth noting is obviously VC, you know, raise, raising capital, you have that capital, which you can spend to hire folks, but it also gives employees the confidence that your business is going to be around for years to come. And it also kind of gives them the validation that, hey, this company's backed by a really good VC firm they must be doing something right because VC firms, you know, ideally should vet companies pretty thoroughly. And so I think it really helps you find good talent. And like the other thing that's worth noting too, is most VC firms like have some sort of value add attribute to them. Pretty much every VC firm claims that they have a value add attribute. Some actually do. And like when they do, it's super valuable because they can help you with hiring. They can help you, you know, with decision-making and thinking about whenever you're at different crossroads, which way you should go. They can connect you with other founders that are in the portfolio that are two steps ahead of you that have been there and done that. So there's a lot that comes with it outside of just the capital. That makes sense. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to raise? And, and that can include like, what kind of business do you think that someone should have? And like when it comes to ideation of a business and concept, and then obviously like the pitching and raising part of things as well. 
It's a big question. There's a lot to it. Um, yeah, if we start with the type of business that could be VC backed, you know, I think it all kind of starts with the market. And I wouldn't focus too much on it because markets change. If you look over the lifespan of a startup five to 10 years, the market's going to change. So just making sure that there are initial signs that there could be a big enough market. Also products change, right? It's so like for us, we initially started by being just focused on social media management. Now we're branching into kind of other parts of agency business operations. So invoicing, allowing agencies to send proposals through us. There's a lot of other features that we're adding, which then kind of expands what our total addressable market could be. But I'd say that's kind of the number one criteria is, is the market big enough to actually build a business that would have VC size returns? And when I say VC size returns, like obviously it depends on what round you're raising, who you're raising from, but let's just say $50 million plus, right? Like obviously each round that you raise, like that exit needs to be larger and larger to the point where it's like, okay, it needs to be a billion dollar company now. But if you find the right regional firms, like you could go raise like a pre-seed round and exit for 50 million and that'd be a good exit for everyone involved. So that's kind of first criteria is like, is the market big enough? Could you build a business that's large enough? In terms of actually going out and pitching VCs and like that whole process, the fact that we had revenue already and like we're near prop profitable when we went to go raise money made the process a lot easier because we didn't necessarily need VC money. It's not like we went to investors and saying, hey, we're going to go out of business in two months. If you don't give us money, can you give us money so we can keep working on this project? It was more like, hey, we are profitable or nearly profitable. We have a clear path to grow this business three times faster. We just need capital to do it. Here's where we're going to spend the money. Here's the three people that we need to hire. Like, do you want to join us on this journey? And like, that's a much clearer story of, okay, here's where the capital is going to go. Like I can see how it's going to increase the value of the business. Cause that's ultimately what VCs want is how do you increase the value of the business? And here's how I'm going to get to this kind of next stage of growth, right? So like having a very clear story of one, how much capital you need two, what you're going to use it for very specifically. And then three, what that gets you to. So hopefully, you know, that's either profitability or that's a next round of funding or that's some sort of exit. But like, I wouldn't necessarily build towards an exit because they're very hard to predict and they're hard to plan for. I think you kind of need to build towards some other outcome. And if you're doing really well, the strategic buyer will recognize that and then potentially acquire you. That's kind of the general story that you need to tell investors. And, you know, in terms of the process, like the more tactical advice of outreach, I would always start with just asking for advice. I wouldn't send an email to an investor saying, Hey, I, I'm raising this round and I want your money, right? <laughs> like they get so many of those emails every day. I think if you kind of word it in a way that's, Hey, like, here's where we're at. We've had a couple of folks that are interested in giving us money, but like, I don't really know if we're ready for a series A or series B or whatever it is. Would you have like 20 minutes to like, just kind of give me advice and like talk through it and like, let me know if you think we're ready and kind of what you're seeing in this market. And ideally if they've, if that investor is already invested in other companies that are in a similar market and they have portfolio companies, making those references is very helpful of like, Hey, I know, so you invested in company X, we're doing something really similar. It's not competitive. You know, we're getting this inbound interest from other investors. Like, is this, is this something we should pursue? Or do you think like we're not quite ready and there's other metrics we need to get in place first. And then that kind of opens the door where you can have that initial meeting with the partner. And then hopefully once things start to progress a bit quicker, then you can actually kind of get to the brass tacks of working through a term sheet and raising the capital.
What was your roadmap? Like what areas did you see that you could invest in really quickly to grow the business? Initially, like with the first pre-seed round that we'd raised, it was mostly around sales because it was just me and my co-founder Ross. And we realized, hey, the biggest bottleneck right now is giving someone a demo. Like we can get more folks coming in through the marketing funnel and handing it off to sales but we don't have enough people to actually spend 30 minutes on a video call with a prospective client to give them that demo where they then convert. And we had all the numbers. We could show investors, look, we can get leads for $30 that are very qualified. They're asking for a demo. 50% of them close on the demo and put in their credit card and start paying. It's like all those numbers looked really good. The payback period was two months. So like, that's also amazing. And we really just have this one bottleneck. And so that was really, kind of a, a compelling pitch that we had for investors and like very clear in terms of where we put the money is let's hire more salespeople so we can increase the throughput of our sales org and, and essentially give more demos. As we've raised larger rounds, so like we just raised our series A in May and that was 5 million. That money, a good portion of it's going towards product enhancements. So less so focused on kind of the near term of how do we grow the business in the next 12 months, but how do we position ourselves to be in a really competitive spot in 18 to 24 months by focusing on the product and starting to expand our offering. So we kind of have the ability to redefine the space for marketing agencies and, and compete less with, let's say Hootsuite or you know Sprout Social who are currently in our space today. Cloud Campaign is a digital platform that helps marketing agencies scale social media management so they can manage more clients and hopefully charge a higher retainer with the leaner team. It's really focused on multi-brand management as well as automation. And I think that's one of the reasons why we do have some larger brands that also use the product is because there is a lot of automation that's built into it um, that really allows the marketer to augment their efforts so they can focus more on the creative aspect and things that are really gonna move the needle and then use the product to automate scheduling and report generation and those types of things. In terms of how it's different from what else is in the market, because we are very focused on marketing agencies, there's a lot of kind of client facing aspects to the product that make us different. So approvals, for example, a lot of agencies need their clients to approve the content before it ever gets published on social media. And so we have an entire approvals section that's completely white labeled. And we also have reporting. So the ability again, to send a white labeled report to the clients at the end of the month. And then kind of that client agency interaction layer also happens on the platform where clients can ask for feedback and pretty much do it all through our platform, hopefully eliminating email and Google Drive and spreadsheets and whatever other scheduling tool they were using previously. And full disclosure, that's how Ryan and I met. So in terms of giving demos, I've definitely received white glove service right in the beginning and I so appreciate it. But hopefully that that time has returned because now I give many demos and I swear by cloud campaign as my social media automation tool and can definitely vouch for that need in terms of when you're running your own marketing agency or client-based service ever, there's just, you need to wear a thousand hats. So it's so great that there's a tool that can make that just a little bit easier. And this makes it a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for, thanks for being a, a big ambassador of cloud campaign. We definitely appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. So I have to ask, so for finding a co-founder that I've always found that so intimidating, it seems as intimidating as like finding the person you're going to marry or picking, I don't know, a best friend. How did you find your co-founder? What's the story behind that? It's super difficult, I think. I mean, I know a lot of folks struggle with it. I think I got really fortunate in terms of how Ross and myself met. So one of my 
really good friends from growing up. TJ went to college with Ross and TJ invited me on this ski and snowboard trip that they were planning in Idaho. And I showed up there and Ross was there as well. And Ross and I kind of met during that trip. And at the time he was selling commercials to Audi. And I was like, man, if this guy can sell commercials to Audi, he could definitely sell software. And that's a skill set that I lack. So my background is more technical. I'm not necessarily a salesperson. And that was kind of the gap I was trying to fill. And then Ross reached out to me after the trip. And I guess he was kind of having a similar internal dialogue because he reached out and said, hey, are you looking for someone like a business partner to help out with this, this new venture you have going on? And yeah, it was just, it, it worked out perfectly. And so we kind of just got the ball rolling from there. And then the rest is kind of history. But I think it is worth noting that I tried to bring on a different co-founder previous to Ross and it ended up not working out. The main reason being we were at kind of different points in our life and we had different risk adversity. So, you know, I'm fairly young. I didn't have a mortgage at the time. I didn't have kids. So it was fairly easy for me to say, look, I don't need a salary for the next couple of years. Like I'll just put all my savings to this company and hopefully it works out. The guy that I brought on as a co-founder, he was in a different place where he was starting his family. He had a mortgage he had to pay for, and he just couldn't take the risk of for furloughing a salary for multiple years. And so after a few months, maybe even two months of trying to make this work out and not getting substantial traction, he ended up having to leave and go get another job. But we structured the kind of compensation and equity in a way that was contingent on him staying for a certain period of time and also hitting certain kind of KPIs and performance metrics. And so that was something that I'm really thankful that we did. Otherwise, if I would have just went up to him and said, here, you get, you know, 30% of the company for being a co-founder, whatever it might be. And then he ends up leaving in three months, like there goes 30% of your company, which is really dangerous. So I think it's really important to like have contracts in place that take that into consideration because it's, it's likely to happen. Like I think finding co-founders really difficult because it's someone that you spend probably more time with than your spouse. And if you don't know the person well, chances are like you might not get along for whatever reason, or they might just not fill the need or the void that you have in terms of like a complementary skill set. Such great information. That's such an important thing to factor in. I love, I love that you put that in there. I mean, you were a software engineer before you decided to start this company and talk about like risk aversion. It, obviously that's you know, by general standards, a pretty cushy gig, one that sounds like you were great at and worked really hard for. So why did you decide to pursue this? Was it out of passion or was it a more logical, I see a real business opportunity here? Or were you just, did you have like the entrepreneurial bug that bit you? So I've always had the entrepreneurial bug. I mean, my parents are both small business owners. My mom's a real estate broker uh, with their own practice. My dad owns a painting business. And so I think from a young age, I saw that they were entrepreneurs and that this was a possibility as a potential career path for me. So I think it's something that's always in the back of my mind, but it's hard to take that leap, right? Like if you, like you said, you have a cushy job, you're making good money, you have balance in your life. Like why would you want to go and try and start a company and lose a lot of those things? You lose your salary, you lose your balance, you end up working 80 hours a week, you lose healthcare, right? Like there's a lot of logistics things that you don't even think about that are really difficult. And for me, it was, it's kind of a funny story. So I stood up the website for cloud campaign on April 19th. And this is when I was working at my previous company as a software engineer. I was working like kind of nights and weekends. And that night I pushed the website live, published it to a couple of forums. 
And then April 20th showed up to work and we were in a satellite office because we had been acquired. HR from the global office was there that day, just kind of unannounced, had no idea why. Sets us all down in the conference room. Meanwhile, my phone is just going crazy. It's just buzzing because I'd set up text notifications every time someone signed up for cloud campaign, this like brand new idea that I had this website. And I'm sitting there and my phone's just buzzing away. And meanwhile, HR is handing out these packets saying that our entire office is getting laid off and we have like a severance package and we have essentially three months to kind of finish the integration of our existing product into a new office that was in Vancouver that was taking over ownership of our product. That was kind of like push come to shove where I had this idea and I was like, yeah, like maybe one day I'll pursue it. And then HR says, hey, by the way, this entire office is fired here's a severance package and like, thanks for all the hard work over the past couple of years. <laughs> yes. That really speaks to the, in like the stability of having a full-time job for sure. I think a lot of people think a full-time job is a secure option, but in fact, it's like, I think the least secure thing because you can't fire yourself if you work for yourself. <laughs> That's a good point. It was like pretty exciting though, because I, I knew I'd always wanted to start a company. And so that night I went home and told my girlfriend, because she knew I set up the website and like told her all about it. And I showed it to her while I was building it. And so I told her, I was like, hey, the, the company I work for, they just gave me $40,000 of seed money to, to start my business. She's like, what? That's crazy. Like, that's, that's so cool. Why would they do that? I was like, well, actually I got fired and I got a $40,000 severance package, but now I'm going to go full time on this. And like her face kind of drops, but then she thinks about it. She's like, I guess it's kind of the same thing. Like it sort of works out the same way. So yeah, I mean, that's how I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it as here's my shot, right? Like you only get so many chances to start a business and everything was kind of lined up perfectly for me. So I was like, if I, if I don't do this, if I don't take this opportunity, I'm going to regret it in 10 years. So I better just go for it. Oh, I love that. That's a great story. And why this problem? Like, did it occur to you in a dream or did you like weigh out the pros and cons and look at the market product fit? How did this specific idea come to you? It was a different product that I started with initially. So that same friend, TJ, who introduced me to my co-founder, Ross, he was working in email marketing at the time at an e-commerce store, or I guess like brand. And he was sharing how they were using email marketing to increase sales based off the weather. So the example would be if you're in San Francisco and it's a nice sunny day in your email, you're going to get, you know, shorts and a t-shirt, for example, if I'm in Boulder, Colorado and it's snowing, I'm going to get a rain, like a snow jacket and some boots in my email. And they noticed that conversions increased substantially. I can't remember what the exact number was, but like it wasn't even worth sending any other type of email because these emails outperformed all others. And my thought was, hmm, that's really interesting. Like this drives real results. Why doesn't this exist on social media? Like this should be a thing. And so that was the initial product was building triggers or like the ability to trigger social media posts based off the weather in whatever geographic region you wanted. What I realized though through that process is like I didn't do enough market research. I didn't really talk to customers initially of like, hey, is this something you want? My thought was they won't like they won't fully understand what it is until I build it. I'm an engineer, so I'm good at building. Let me just build it. I'll put it out in the market and then people will understand it and they'll purchase it. Completely wrong. That was a terrible idea. Like probably six months down that path, I had a lot of folks that signed up to use the product for free. And then I flipped on payments and I think one person paid 
and it was like five dollars a month and that was a rude awakening where i was like oh no like maybe this actually isn't a problem maybe this doesn't actually solve anything and people aren't willing to pay for it started reaching out to anyone that signed up to try and have conversations and everyone was like yeah like it's cool but it kind of just like augments what i'm doing today and like i still need my core scheduler i still need my boot suite and i don't want to pay for two social tools and then my thought was okay well what about enterprises like enterprises have enough money to have specialized tools they'd probably pay for this went and talked to a couple of enterprises and their response was yeah that's really cool but we use an agency we don't manage social media in-house we hire an agency or a contractor or consultant, like go pitch them. And if they want to use it, then sure, yeah, we'll pay for it. And that was kind of the light bulb moment of like, why don't I just go after agencies? Like they're completely underserved market. If you sell one agency, you get, you know, 30, 40 brands, depending on the size of the agency. Like everything kind of just makes sense that agencies are the right opportunity. And at that point pivoted, realized I need a co-founder because we need to actually sell agencies and get on the phone and give demos. And that was kind of like when the whole business did a 180 and went in a different direction. Nice. Very cool. And what year was this? This was towards the end of 2017. So I like started working on it in April, 2017, launched MVP in June. And then like towards the end of 2017, realized that there's this bigger opportunity brought on Ross as a co-founder in March of 2018. Wow. This is all so recent. I love how, how quickly <laughs> this is all moving. So I guess I'd love to know, how did you, obviously you made your first $5 from the weather experiment, but how did you actually get things rolling? When did you make your first dollar or a few hundred dollars with this specific business? So right around the time that Ross joined, I was just messaging folks on Instagram and Twitter say, would you be interested in at least having a conversation to like give me feedback on what we're building? Because we are familiar with me, Edgar, and like we've kind of built it in a, like a similar way, but more built for agencies. And that's where our first kind of larger agency customers came from was just doing that kind of cold outreach. And then probably the next 10 customers came from outreach that Ross was doing, where Ross would just go down a list of agencies, call them, say, hey, we want to interview you for our blog, which is something that we actually did. We'd actually interview them, do the write-up on our blog, but essentially asking them critical questions of what's your biggest pain point today? Do you manage social media? How many clients do you manage? Which then informed the product in terms of like, hey, what do we need to build in the product? What are the biggest pain points for agencies on social? How do we solve them? And then some of those people that went through the interview process became our early pilot customers as well. I like that you use the same approach for VCs as you do customers a little. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> good, good point. I didn't think about that. Clever. It's a, it's a good sales strategy. I've done it myself. So nice. People love to give advice, honestly. If you make them aware that they're the thought leader and they're really smart and they kind of know best and like you're, you're genuinely asking for advice, like their advice is super helpful. But at the same time, once they feel heard, then they're like, oh, wow, like, yeah, my feedback went into this product. I, I want to try. I want to use it now. That is so true because I remember when you and I worked together, some of the customizations I needed went into the product. So now, of course, mm-hmm. I want to use it because it was designed kind of for me. Yeah, totally. I, you you kind of see your trademark on there, you know, like you see your personal touch of what you've asked for and then now it's built into the product. 
So how did you go? I mean, that nitty gritty stuff gets in the way of a lot of entrepreneurs, like healthcare. What was it like in the beginning before you raised trying to take care of your own health care? Like, what did you do? How did you go about that and kind of like rebuilding the systems that had supported you with your full-time job? And, and how long did you have to go in that system before you were able to build out a company that provided that? I love that question. So I feel like it's something that a lot of podcasts and shows don't touch on. And it's so intimidating. Like as you're making that leap, of like there's so many things you take for granted that your employer provides that all of a sudden you no longer have. And you're like, what am I, what do I do? Like, what? there's no playbook for this. No one's told me how to do this. So for me, because I wasn't making a salary, I could be on cover California. At the time I was living in San Francisco and you qualify as long as you're making, I think less than $20,000 a year or something in that range. And so you know, as soon as I went full-time on cloud campaign, I applied and got complete coverage totally for free. And it's actually really good healthcare um, compared to the plan I had previously. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I handled it. And it wasn't for a couple of years until I was making enough and the company was in a place where it could actually get healthcare through the company. That's so cool. That is great. I also agree. I wish there was a guide for that, um, especially for people that maybe don't qualify for Covered California, but still really aren't making a lot. Because I have a lot of friends that are contractors and freelancers, and they're making just enough to have to pay the full shabam. And that's like, you're better off just not making any money, I think, in some ways. Yeah, like you're totally right. Like you might be better off not making money if you're spending all your money on healthcare. Definitely. And then, I mean, gosh, you've scaled so fast. So how many people are in the company now? We're at 25 now. (gasps) Wow. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. So that is something I hear is another pain point for founders in terms of like hiring, delegating, outsourcing, finding like the right culture fit or like creating a diverse culture with lots of different perspectives that's going to help your company thrive. So how have you approached that? Yeah, diversity is so important. And it's one of those things that can't be overlooked. Like you can't wait until you're 20 employees to start to think about diversity because diverse candidates will not want to work for your company, right? Like if they don't see themselves within your company, they're not going to feel comfortable there. And it's going to be really hard to kind of solve that problem in the future. And so it's something that we've been pretty proactive and have taken some affirmative action around early on. And when we think about diversity, it's a lot of different things, right? It's gender diversity, it's race, background, ethnicity, diversity, it's age diversity as well. I think a lot of folks overlook age diversity, but that's really important. And so, yeah, like we've, we've tried to be really deliberate about it. And I think that's helped us a lot now that we're a slightly, like we're still a small company, but slightly larger, we're able to attract more diverse candidates because we've already kind of baked that into the DNA of who we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's super important in terms of developing the culture at the company. Like we've been pretty deliberate about choosing what are the core values that we stand for? What's our mission? What's our vision? Putting policies and kind of processes in place before we even had employees. Like when it was just two of us, we're like, all right, we want to do all hands every Friday. We want to do team lunches every Wednesday. We want to do like a camping trip every year. We want to do an annual planning trip where we like rent a cabin and all just like crash in a cabin for a week and plan out what we want to accomplish this year. So there's always like fun things that we plan when it's just two of us. And then it makes it really easy. Now that we add more employees and companies getting larger, everyone kind of comes in and during that initial week of onboarding, hey, here's what we do. Here's what we do as a company. Is there anything on here that you want to change? Anything that you want to add? And it's like, we try to make it a collaborative process. That way everyone feels bought in. And we have changed some of our core values over time just as the company's grown. But yeah, I mean, like culture 
is a living, breathing thing. Every new hire changes the culture. And so I think you need to make sure, hopefully it's changing it in the right direction and for the better. And we have an entire step of our interview process that's just focused on culture. What does that step include? Like what kind of questions do you ask? It's pretty open-ended. So typically we'll have folks from the company that are on a different team or different department lead the culture interview. So for example, for hiring an engineer, hopefully someone from sales or customer success or marketing will lead that culture interview. And we leave it fairly open-ended, but kind of the barometer that we have is, hey, we go on a camping trip every year. Would you want to spend three days in the woods with this person, right? Like, would you have fun camping with this person, sitting around the campfire, talking to them? And if the answer is no, then like, they're probably not a great culture fit. I love how deliberate that process is because when you are so thoughtful with your questions in terms of like, how does this match to our core values? It makes it more objective as well because that's one concern that we have is right now our culture interview is, is pretty subjective. Like, Anyone has veto rights where anyone that's sitting on the interview can say, no, I don't think we should move this person forward. And so far it's been fine because we're such a small team. There's a lot of accountability there to make the right decision. But I could see a situation where the company gets larger and someone has some sort of underlying bias that maybe they're not even aware of, you know, and they subjectively deny a candidate because of that bias. And that's something that we obviously want to avoid. I know that's definitely something I think we're all trying to be more aware of and something that I try to think about as well. And on that note, I mean, I think what you've done with raising is so impressive, but I know the the numbers with between like women and men in the VC world are so disparate. Have you seen that change at all? Or do you have any thoughts on why that could potentially be and, and like what women or men could do to, to help switch it in a different way? It seems like, and this is from the outside looking in, it seems like one of the issues is really at the top of the funnel. Like we're just not getting enough women opportunities to start businesses. And I think a lot of that unfortunately is is this like terrible cycle where women don't see themselves in leadership roles when they're kids, right? Like if you look at a 13 year old girl and you say, hey, like tell me a CEO or a venture capitalist or someone on the board that that you know that's a woman that like you aspire to be and you kind of see yourself being one day. I think it's hard. Like if you ask a guy, they're gonna be like, oh, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, right? There's so many examples that I think it's really easy for guys to be like, oh yeah, like that can be me one day. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Like I see myself in that position. It's a lot harder for women, it's a lot harder for people of color, it's a lot harder for minorities. And so I think it's sort of a chicken and egg issue where like. Yes, we need to encourage young women today to take that step to becoming an entrepreneur, to starting their own business. So hopefully we get more kind of candidates that can go and raise VC money. But at the same time, they need to see representation. They need to be supported, you know, proactively and affirmatively to take that step and feel confident doing so. And so I don't know what the exact solution is. I mean, it's a really tough problem, but I think one thing that most founders can do is think a lot about their board and like anytime there's a chance to put someone that looks different than them on their board, it's it's usually a good decision. Again, it's hard because if you look at most VC firms, a lot of VC firms, the partners are white males. It's the partner that gets put on the board when you raise, you know, institutional capital from around. And so sometimes there's, there's limited ability in terms of like who you can actually add to your board. 
but you could always, you know, go after independents or even board observers that, again, maybe don't look the same as you to then have these younger folks see representation that they can align with and be inspired by to then kind of build this next generation of entrepreneurs that look different than what we have today. I think that's beautiful. And I think you're obviously a big part of the solution because it comes down to also helping mentor women who maybe otherwise are having trouble getting into the boys club, I guess, as you could call it, because that can definitely be tricky as well. You need someone that's going to be a proponent for women that kind of bridges that gap who already is, you know, in the boys club for a lack of a better way of saying it, who can then let women in and help them understand, you know, who the right connections are and those types of things. It's hard though. I mean, it's really hard and it's something I hope we can fix in the short term over the next like five, 10 years. And it's a lasting impact that, that continues to make it more of a fair environment for, for women. You know, I think there are some VC firms that are taking proactive measures, which is great to see where they have certain diversity requirements that they need to meet in terms of where their capital is going. And so they won't invest in companies or like their, their portfolio of companies need to have, you know, a certain percentage of women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses. And I think that's something that can really accelerate the trend because capital kind of determines in some ways who's successful and who isn't, right? Like if I went to go raise capital and that's the biggest inhibitor of our growth right now, and I just couldn't raise capital, it would be really hard for me to grow my business. And so I think if there are more VC firms that are taking these correct steps to improve the problem and have a better solution, I think that's going to accelerate this whole process leaps and bounds. Such great advice. Very, very wise. And then, I mean, to a young entrepreneur who maybe is a woman or a minority or just some, you know, kid who sees himself as the next Bezos or Elon Musk, what advice would you give to somebody who's just getting started and has no idea where to begin and maybe doesn't have a background in technology? I would say find a mentor. It's really helpful to have someone who's been there and done that. And it doesn't have to be someone that is at the level of Bezos or Zuckerberg, it can be someone that is one or two steps ahead of you, just because, you know, having, there's going to be so many new things that you need to learn when you start a company and you don't want to spend your time focused on these things that are typically done the same way and are not going to have any sort of substantial impact in terms of whether or not your business is successful, right? Like, how do I incorporate my business? How do I issue founder stock? Should I sign my A through B or not? Yes, you should. You should file it and do it within 30 days. Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of money when you sell the company. But there's so many small things like that that just like consume so much time. And if you can find someone that, again, is a year or two ahead of you and has already done that, and they can just give you the playbook of here's what you need to do. It's a no-brainer. It's not like something you really need to deliberate much on. It's going to save you a lot of time and allow you to focus your energy on the things that will make your business different and will help you be successful. Okay. I love that. Can we rewind and double click on the thing that we need to file so we don't lose a lot of money when we sell our company? What is that about? Yeah, this is not financial advice, but it's an 83B. Essentially, when you're issuing your founder's stock, if you file the 83B within 30 days with the IRS, it says that this stock is kind of being taxed and evaluated at the current par value of it. And at, at that moment, like the fair value of stock is 0.0001 cent because it's not worth anything because you just started your company. And so essentially you're not having to pay any sort of substantial tax on it. The difference is if you don't file that, 
and then you eventually sell, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax on it. Hopefully you've held it for long enough where it's long-term capital gains tax, but you know, under the Biden administration, that might be very similar to income tax, just like 40%. And so you might end up being paying 40% on whatever, whatever that outcome is that you exit at. Otherwise it's going to be much, much less than that. If you do file your A through B in a timely fashion. Wow. That is just gold. That's like the nitty gritty financial stuff that I love talking about in this podcast. So Thank you. Is there any other stuff like that that you've stumbled upon as a founder where you're just like, thank goodness I had someone to direct me away from that or over here, even if it's like tiny logistical, strange things that you otherwise wouldn't have known about? There's a couple of small things. Like when you form your company, if you think at some point you maybe might take VC money, just do a C corporation, like a Delaware C corp. Delaware is the most common. The law is very simple there. So that's what most attorneys are used to. They also have, I think, some like tax benefits to it. So yeah, I would just go incorporate as a Delaware C Corp instead of doing like an LLC or S Corp, just because when you go to raise that first financial like institutional round, they're going to force you to switch to a C Corp. It's very hard to do that. So most likely what commonly happens is you just dissolve the company and then form a new company as a C Corp, which is just a lot of extra hoops that aren't worth jumping through. Also, when you do go form the C Corp, Initially, when you don't have a lot of assets, the franchise tax is dependent on the number of like shares that you authorize. So you can do the math on it and like it might be different from like when folks are actually going through the process versus what it is right now. But like right now, I think it's five to 10,000 shares is kind of like the minimum amount that you can authorize. And that's what's going to yield the lowest franchise tax. Beyond that, you start to pay like some tax that's proportionate to the number of shares that you authorize. So let's just say out of the gate, you go and authorize 10 million shares, which is like a really common number. Now you're paying taxes, franchise tax on 10 million shares. You don't need 10 million shares. Like it's just you or you and a few co-founders. Like it doesn't matter how many total shares there are. It just matters like what percentage of the shares you have. At some point when you go and you want to raise VC money, you can then up it to 10 million. You can do a, like a stock split. So you know, your 5,000 shares of stock now become 5 million shares of stock or whatever it might be. And then you start paying truer franchise tax, which would be like thousands of dollars instead of maybe like $400, which is what it would be if you do the minimum amount. So there's a few things like that, that are just kind of like gotchas that it's worth doing the research on because it's going to save you money. And like when you're, especially if you're bootstrapped and it's your savings account, that's paying for everything. Like you want to save as much money as possible. Oh yeah, definitely. That's such a good point. I mean, when it comes to bootstrapping too, when you originally put your own money into the business, how did you like track that with bank accounts or credit cards or whatever so that it didn't turn into a mess between your finances and the companies? Yeah. So, I mean, what I ended up doing is I incorporated the company through Stripe Atlas, which is a very seamless, great process. Through that process, Stripe opens a bank account for you with Silicon Valley Bank. Through that process, they open up a bank account. And so I had a separate business bank account from the start. And I just transferred some portion of money that I thought was going to be enough to give me like a year and a half of runway to try and get the business off the ground. Very smart. I like that. I think I'm also really curious because the liability, like I've always taken on contractors, independent contractors, and I've been really hesitant to hire full time. Like, I guess with your co-founder, you both have shares, but when it came time to take on somebody that you had to salary and provide benefits, what were all the learning curves that you had to go through there? Yeah. I mean, we didn't offer benefits right off the bat. I think, I think it varies state to state, but I think most states 
the company doesn't need to offer benefits until they're a certain size. It wasn't until I think we had like four employees, three employees that we started offering benefits. So like still fairly early on, but with employee number one, the only kind of consideration that we had is, you know, how much are they getting paid? What are like the payroll taxes? What are like the different forms that we need to file? Making sure we're doing identity verification and filing I-9 for them and issuing W-2s. But luckily, you know, there's some products out there that handle a lot of that for you. So we use Gusto, which has been amazing. We just love Gusto. They're in Denver here, so they're pretty local to us. And yeah, they handle the payroll. They handle all the payroll taxes. They handle a lot of the form filings for you with different counties and states and I-9 with the, the federal government. So like they make it really easy. We also do all of our benefits through them now. They have like different partners that they work with. So as new employees get onboarded into Gusto, they can just choose what better, whatever benefits they want. But yeah, it takes honestly like a lot of the headache of onboarding and hiring employees out of question. I love that. That's always a really good tip too. If there's ever a software like yours that can outsource or automate, a, you know, a person. So I assume your first hire wasn't necessarily people or HR related, but sales related. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. What were the other sort of like key roles you felt like you needed as quickly as possible to scale and meet your goals? So I'd say the first one, the first two hires that we made were related to sales. And then the third hire that we made, customer success, really just the more kind of people intensive roles like engineering. I did all by myself for a while until we hired our first engineer in like April, 2020, which is a pretty late into the process. But yeah, like it was pretty apparent who we need to hire just based off of what the biggest bottlenecks were, right? Like with sales is very apparent that, hey, we could grow the business bigger if we just had more people. So let's just hire more people to give demos. All right, that problem solved. Oh, wow, we have a lot of people signing up for the product now and a lot of people have questions and need onboarding. There's a clear bottleneck there. Like people are having to wait like a week or two to get onboarded onto our product. That's a terrible experience. Let's hire a customer success manager who can do onboarding. So it's like, it's very apparent. Like the, the pains were very, very visceral and like clear in terms of where they were. And then, you know, eventually it was like, okay, like these problems are solved. Now the product's moving too slow. Like now we have all these customers and they're all using the product. They're requesting a lot of features and we don't have the bandwidth to build them. Let's hire some engineers. Like, boom, okay, that's solved. Interesting. Now, like, we're not getting enough leads for our sales team, right? The leads are, like, pretty volatile. Let's hire a marketer to, like, help with, like, lead quality and quantity. And so it's really, it's been, like, pretty intuitive. Like, I wouldn't say there have been too many instances where we just, like, didn't know who to hire next. It's like, oh, like, should we hire this person or this person? It's always, like, this is our biggest problem right now. We need to put this fire out. Like let's hire someone in to take this over. That's, that is like more intuitive than you would think. Just like go to whatever bottleneck and then put a person on it. Totally. And like, ideally as one of the founders, like you can solve that problem in the short term and figure out how to effectively solve it. And then that gives you the ability to effectively recruit for it because you know what that skill set requires, right? Like my co-founder Ross was doing all, like all the support and onboarding. I was doing all the engineering. I was doing a lot of the marketing too. And so it was very apparent, like, okay, like I've done this. I know what's required for this role. Like here's the kind of the different responsibilities you'll have. Here's the different attributes we're looking for in a candidate. Let's go put up job listing, run a process. Yep. It's very easy to tell them like, yep, here's what your day to day is going to look like. So I've been doing it for the past three months. You're going to take over my job. 
And then I'm going to go find another buyer to try and put out, like figure out how to systemize it and then hire someone to replace me again. And how do you know the difference like between, okay, there's a tool or like a SaaS product that exists or we need a person for this? Is it just like those really people heavy? But I guess like HR is pretty person heavy or it used to be. And now you've got gusto. So yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I personally have a tendency to try and put a product in first. And then if that product doesn't work, then add a person or like have a person augment the product to make it work better. Obviously people aren't as scalable as products are, right? <laughs> like a person can only span themselves so thin versus a product. A lot of times can just continue to scale as you throw more people or processes or whatever might be at it. So that's been my tendency. And I think that might be kind of my engineering background is I just like to make things scalable from the start and like hopefully never have to touch it again and just try and find products that will work for one employee and will also hopefully work for 100 employees once we get there. Yeah. I think the engineer efficiency brain works quite well with the business brain because you a business is like a system to be built at the end of the day. So that's really cool. Do you have a tech stack outside of Gusto that you swear by, whether that's like Salesforce, obviously cloud campaign is a must. What else? We definitely use cloud campaign for like everything related to organic social, which has been amazing. And like the fun part about it is now that our marketing team's gotten a lot bigger. So there's four people in marketing right now. We get direct feedback internally from our team of like, hey, why is it work this way? Or like, we change this or can we build this extra feature? So that's been super helpful. But yeah, I mean, outside of Cloud Campaign, our, our tech stack, we use HubSpot. I don't have a lot of experience with other CRMs. So I couldn't necessarily say like HubSpot's so much better than Salesforce because of this reason. I don't know. It just works for us. And that's what we've used since day one. Oh, another kind of like secret hint for folks. They have a startup program where you can get 90% off for the first like year or two. There's a lot of companies that are large that do this type of stuff. Facebook does free ad credits. Like look into it. There's, there's a handful of companies that do this. Amazon does like, up to like $100,000 in server credits as well. So like we were writing every possible credit program for the first two years, which made it very easy to bootstrap because we had like no expenses. Like we didn't pay for any software. Everything was like free or very, very cheap. Zendesk does the same thing as well. That was huge. And that was one of the reasons why we chose HubSpot is because they had the startup program. We're like, all right, like it's the only CRM we can afford. So let's just go with it. And so far it's scaled well. We have like 25,000 contacts in there now and we use it for both sales and marketing. Very cool. I love that. That's a great tip. I mean, and on that note, speaking of scaling, I mean, is your goal an exit with this or do you want to stay in cloud campaign forever? Like what is your dream future for this whole endeavor? Our mission is to help marketing agencies scale. Our vision is to, mo- to democratize starting, running and growing a marketing agency, which is a pretty lofty ambitious goal like kind of the way i liken it to or compare it to is shopify right like the way shopify's made it so easy to start an e-commerce store within 20 minutes you can be spun up you can start selling products online they help like they have partners that help you with fulfillment they have a marketplace where you can add other tools and products to help you with marketing and sales and whatever else like it's amazing and i i think there's an opportunity to do the same thing for marketing agencies where we can have the all-in-one solution where it's so simple, as long as you have the marketing background or that correct skill set, you can go and start to kind of productize your service, use cloud campaigns to invoice your clients and send proposals and have all the marketing automation tools you need at your disposal. So, you know, I think it's gonna be a while before we accomplish that goal. I think 
it's going to keep us busy for the next probably four to five years. Obviously, in parallels, we're really focused on the product and making sure our customers are happy. Also focused on growing revenue and hitting those different benchmarks that we've set for ourselves. In four years, four to five years, we should be at a point where we've crossed 100 million in annual revenue, which is kind of the current benchmark to go public. So that's that's ultimately what we're building towards. Like there might be potential for an exit along the way, assuming that we're continuing to execute and doing a really good job. There are you know a handful of companies that are in our space that are valued at over a billion dollars already and have the free flow of cash to purchase us. So yeah, I guess we'll see. I mean, we're not necessarily building towards any sort of near-term exit. I think the real goal here is accomplishing that that vision that we've set out for ourselves and becoming a public company. But if along the way there's an interesting offer and you know the acquiring company has a similar mission to ours and we can kind of collaborate forces on it, I think that'd be pretty interesting for us too. Very smart. I love that. And I know one of the pieces of advice you gave was to find a mentor, but I also know that can be kind of overwhelming for people. How did you, did you have any mentors along the way that you found or like, how would you go about if you had to start from square one? I did. I mean, I got super lucky. It was very, very serendipitous. Um, When I was working at my previous company in San Mateo, I was walking my dog. I just like adopted this dog a week a week prior and I was walking Benny down the street and Benny locks eyes with this husky that's like a block away, like literally a block away. It's super far away. Just locks eyes and just lays down and Benny would not move. I'm like tugging on the leash. He's like, no, I must say hi to this dog. And comically enough, the husky like saw Benny and the husky's like just pulling her owner towards towards us, towards Benny. And we're just like, again, it's like a block waist. It's like super awkward. Just like standing there, like waiting until the dogs finally meet. And I was like, hey man, how's it going? He's like, hey, pretty good. Like I just adopted this dog a week ago. And I was like, oh, me too. He's like, we should just like hang out at lunch because we both work in the same spot and we can let the dogs run in the park and get them tired. I was like, that sounds great. I don't have no idea who you are, but sure. End up learning, like, so meeting up with them a couple of times, like a couple of times per week, end up getting to know them better and realize like, he was a startup founder. He had founded like a couple of companies, had successful exits. I was like, wow, that's super cool and impressive. Like I would love to start a company one day. We should just like hang out. Like, do you mind if I stay in touch and like ask you questions? And so again, it was very serendipitous. Like it's hard to reproduce that type of situation, but I got really lucky that I met Taz, um, who's this guy that I met on the street in San Mateo. And he ended up becoming our first advisor and was one of our, like one of my early mentors that just really helped me figure out how to get the business up and running, how to hire our first salespeople, how to set up comp structures, all those types of things that are really helpful. Oh, that is so cool. That is very Lady in the Tramp or like 101 Dalmatians, romantic right there. Yeah. So (laughs) Taz, what were like the businesses that he had done before? So most recently he had started Captivate, which is like an influencer marketing company slash platform, they're doing well. So that's, that's his most recent venture. And then his background prior to that was as a sales leader where I can't remember the name of the company, but they had exited to Yahoo for a very sizable outcome. I think in the early 2000s. After that, he like took some time off to just like have fun and enjoy life and then came back and started Captivate. And yeah, they're doing great. I think there's like five co-founders there, each with different backgrounds and skill sets. That's awesome. So I should get a dog, move to San Mateo and take it on lots of walks. 
Absolutely. Maybe even like Palo Alto, you know, <laughs> Stanford grads that are starting the next cool company. Really smart. Really smart. Yeah. I like, well, that brings me to a really good topic, which is you actually have moved over to Colorado because I've heard the party's kind of over in the Bay Area. Maybe the party's coming back. Like, what was that transition like for you? And why'd you decide to make the move? It might still be coming back. I, I wouldn't say. I'm any sort of indication as to what's happening in San Francisco more for me, it was an opportunity to move to a new region where I think there's a really strong sense of community here. And I think entrepreneurs, operate previous operators, VCs like want Boulder to be successful. They want Boulder startups to succeed. And that's just been huge for us because it allows us to kind of get meetings with anyone we want. Like I can honestly just like go through the roster of LPs that are investors in any of our funds or firms and say like, Hey, I want to meet with this person for dinner and they'll schedule it. So it's kind of like a big fish, small pond mentality in a way, right? Like if you're one of the top performing companies in their portfolio and it's a small geographic region. So like there's not tons of companies that they're focused on working with you get a lot of their attention and they really want to make sure you succeed. It's a lot harder for that to happen in the Bay area. Like if you just think about the number of startups that are in San Francisco, the number of like very impressive startups too, that are just absolutely crushing it. Like we would be completely overlooked. Like we're doing well, but we're not clubhouse, right? Like we didn't just blow up overnight where we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users and generating like all sorts of revenue. That's not us. And like, I think that's the difference is like, if you start a company in the Bay area, like you better hope you're one of those explosive unicorns. Otherwise no one really cares about you. At least that's my understanding of it. Like I haven't raised VC money from the Bay area, so it could be a bit different, but like that was my interpretation was we have a much better opportunity of being successful and getting all the attention if we move to have a a secondary market. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. And I think that it's kind of a shame because sometimes the Bay Area does pass over really viable business models in exchange for like the hot new glamorous type thing. And like I've heard like some questions around, for example, Clubhouse is the new kid on the block and it's cool, but the actual feasibility of it being long-term profitable, like your business. So I like the turtle model a little bit more than the hair sometimes, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, you need a good foundation to build a successful company. And I think if you're so focused on near-term success, sometimes that like ends up being a fault for you. You know, you burn out or you get too tired or just don't have the proper foundation in place to scale. Do you think someone could walk their dog in Colorado and have the same kind of fortuitous connection? Is it kind of turning into if you live in the right neighborhood or something like that? It's starting to, for sure. I don't know how native Coloradans feel about it because there's a lot of us transplants here now. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, I met with two founders yesterday that started companies and moved to Boulder and they're kind of in early phases of raising like pre-seed or seed rounds. So there's definitely more and more founders and companies that are moving here. Where are you from? I'm originally from Southern California, like Orange County area. Nice. So how are you finding this transition? It's been great. I honestly love Colorado. I mean, we're in Boulder and Boulder's such a nice balance between having like a little bit of downtown and nightlife and things to do, lots of great food and restaurants, but also being near mountains for hiking and snowboarding and rock climbing and, you know, paddle boarding. Like there's just so much fun stuff to do. And I think what we realized when we were living in San Francisco is like, 
we'd look back at the end of the summer and be like, what did we do? Like every single weekend we're driving three hours to get outdoors and get out of the city. Right. We're driving to Tahoe, Big Sur, Sonoma. And we're like, why, like, why, why are we living in the city? If all we do during the week is we work. And then on the weekends we drive three hours in Bay area traffic to get out of the Bay area. And it's like, this doesn't add up. Like this doesn't make sense. Let's think about somewhere else we could live. And Boulder just seemed like a great spot. So like started to kind of put things in place to, to move out here. I love that. Do you have any favorite thought leaders, books, podcasts, things that you listen to as a startup founder to stay in the loop and on top of things or money resources as well? I mean, I listen to so many podcasts. It's like almost to the point where it's hard to remember the names of all of them because there are so many. But if folks are interested in like VC and pitching and like that whole process, the pitch from Gimlet Media is great. It just gives you the full kind of unfiltered process of pitching investors and like they actually get money on the show. You know, the the kind of follow-up and due diligence is very different in real life, but at least like the pitch process, you get a get a feel for like how it typically goes, what questions investors are going to ask. So would definitely recommend that one if folks are interested. And, you know, I listen to a lot of the kind of common podcasts, like How We Built This and Masters of Scale, uh, Freakonomics. There's been a few good books too. So like Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore is a really good book. It kind of talks about like market adoption of a product. It's like a fun book to read because as you build your company and this is a company that kind of reaches different phases of market saturation, different parts of the book are more relatable. So like initially it's talking about, you know, early adopters and how like they're willing to kind of put up with issues in the product to get this competitive advantage of being the first user. And then that moves like early minority or early majority, like this next kind of next segment. And then there's like the chasm to the, the broader group of the market and like where most of the customers will live and then beyond and beyond that and like the different kind of requirements to have a product that you can sell to these different customer bases and like what they look for right like the further along you get the less likely someone is to switch to a new product the more that they need market validation the more that they need some sort of like public recognition of your product as being like the best solution out there before they're willing to even try it and it kind of foreshadows the different hurdles that you're going to face as you build your company and like get to again like become more and more saturated into this this broader market so that's definitely a good one peter Thiel zero to one is, is a very common book more kind of helpful on the ideation phase if you like don't know what you want to work on or what type of company you want to build um, there's some good ideas in there and like interesting frameworks of how to think about it andy grove has a good book High output management. If you're more interested in like people management, process management, it's pretty dry. So <laughs> you have to be pretty committed to reading that one. I think the last book I'd recommend, which is just like a fun nonfiction, is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. It's a good one. It's like just so inspirational, like the amount of things that he overcame and just so many hurdles that you just like most people would have given up on and be like, it's not worth, it's not worth it feels like it doesn't matter. Like I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to fly to Japan and like find a new shoe manufacturer. Like it's crazy. It's just, it was one of those books I just could not put down and like read the whole thing over, I think like three days or something like that. Yeah. That's one of the things we bonded about. I remember is because we both had read all these startup books and I was so excited to have like a book club buddy to talk about. And I think I told you already, but I met Geoffrey Moore at a Strata 
data conference by O'Reilly Media. So it was really cool to see him speak. I'll try to find the recording and send it to you. That's awesome. Yeah, that's super cool. He's he's a sharp dude. I hope he ends up writing more books or like even more like essays or kind of short form content because I think he's super sharp and like understands this whole go to market journey really well. I haven't read the book since college. I'm going to have to to dig back into it. That's a really good tip. Also, I'm going to have to send you the podcast. I had this this financial advice influencer named Grant Sabatier, and he had such a great list of books as well. I'll have to try to remember the names of all of them. I'll send you the podcast when it goes live, though. Like, really, really good if you're starting a business type book recommendations. So did you ever experience any imposter syndrome or fear or panic when you were going through all of this? Or you were you able to remove that emotion from the process? Like, How did you have the confidence to move forward or is that not an issue for you? I think it's impossible to not feel like an imposter and remove that from the whole experience. You know, one of the tougher things is maybe not as much imposter syndrome, but like uncertainty, like whether or not this is even going to work out and whether or not you're just wasting your time and your money and these scarce resources that you have a very finite amount of that was the hard part, right? There definitely was imposter syndrome and felt out of place and, going to meetups and like, I didn't call myself like a founder or CEO. I didn't mention I was starting a company for like probably a year and a half. I'd always just say like, Oh, like I'm a software engineer. Like I'm working on this project, you know, like I wouldn't say I was a startup founder because I didn't feel like I was a startup founder. Like I didn't have anything to show for it. And so definitely had that experience, but yeah, again, just like friends asking or like, when do you decide like if you're going to keep going at this or if you shut it down, right. Or like, how long are you doing this for? When are you going to go out and like get a job? Like when are you going to go interview places? And that's super frustrating to hear as you're trying to start a company because you're kind of having the same thoughts in your mind, but you're trying to like suppress them. And you're like, no, like it's going to work. I'm going to figure it out. We're going to be successful. But slowly like creeping up your mind is, okay, like at what point do I just call it quits when I stop throwing my personal savings away and I go get a job somewhere? Because there's obviously your money that you're putting into the startup, but there's also opportunity costs of what you could be making if you're working elsewhere. And like that kind of compounds and doubles the amount of money you're potentially losing. So it's hard. Like it's a really hard mental game to commit to something and persevere and push through to make it actually work. And, you know, for me, it was a couple of years before we're even generating like enough revenue to feel like, okay, I think this has legs. Like, I think this can turn into something at some point. That's an incredible story. That's really inspirational because I know that's how I often feel and people think I'm really brave, but it's not the case. You're, you just have to like grin and bear it and make it through. Like, at what point did you feel like you were okay? And like, what kept you from giving up to that temptation? I think it was helpful having a co-founder, like someone to suffer with you in the trenches. So bringing a co-founder on was was definitely a, a good decision. Stubbornness. I mean, like, I'm just kind of a stubborn person. So like that actually helped me because I was like, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to figure it out. What's hard is like finding the balance between persevering and being stubborn and sticking with it and being flexible and pivoting, right? Like I pivoted like six, seven months in. If I wouldn't have done that, I don't think this would have worked out. So it's it's about kind of believing in like this broader idea, like, yes, I can start a company and I'm going to do it, but not being married to like, this is the one idea or the one product that has to work out. Like maybe that's not actually the right idea. And like, that's the really hard thing of understanding 
when is something not working and you need to change it and you need to pivot versus like, when are you just so close to the hump that you just need to push a little bit further and it's going to pan out? And like, I don't think there's any sort of silver bullet for it. I don't think there's like advice that's going to work for everyone. Um, but I would definitely like watch the trends, right? So like for us, it was just a slog for a really long time. And then we started seeing, oh, wow, we're like website visitors are going way up. Like we're getting all these leads. Like it feels like if this continues for three months, the business is going to be in a very different spot. Like let's stick with it and let's push through it for three months. And like, let's then see what happens. And like, let's do a retro and be like, did we end up where we thought we were going to end up? And for us, it panned out really well. We're like, yes, like that increase in traffic, increase in leads continued and sustained for the next few months. And then we're like, okay, this is like a real opportunity. This is a real business that we have now. That's so cool. That's very exciting and very inspiring. I'm glad that I'm not the only one that feels that way all the time. (laughs) Yep. I mean, fortunately it goes away. Like I think recently I've like started to call myself like, oh, I'm like a CEO of a startup. Like it wasn't until very recently that I started to say that. I mean, part of it is is definitely imposter syndrome, just because I think the media portrays startup CEOs as a certain thing, and it doesn't feel like that's what I am. I think the other thing is I don't know. Like it's it's not always something you want to talk about, right? Like as soon as you say you're a startup CEO, like people just have like so many questions sometimes, and like if you're at an event, you're like, I, I don't, I don't really want to just talk about this all day. Like I want to talk about like rock climbing and like snowboarding and things that I like to do, not like what I do at work. Like what I do at work doesn't necessarily define me. Fortunately, you can now just send them to this podcast. So yes. perfect. <laughs> yeah. I'll just like have this link ready. I like get QR code. How about that? <laughs> Show them the QR code and be like, here, you can find out what I do here. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Are there any like common questions you want to address here? So you never have to tell anyone again and you just <laughs> send them to this interview. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of it. I would love to hear more since you do love talking about dogs and snowboarding. And I mean, I'm kind of curious about your engagement story. If it's okay, if I ask, like, how did you go about the whole getting engaged thing of process of things? Yeah. So it kind of dates back to our first year of dating. So we've been together for eight years now. And our first year of dating, kind of on our like first dating anniversary, we went on this backpacking trip in Big Sur. And after the trip, we were driving back up the coast to go back to San Francisco. And there's this pullout over by Bixby Bridge. And it's like this beautiful scenic overlook of Big Sur. The bridge was built in like 1930 or something like that. So it's like this historic landmark. And so we pulled over there. There's a lot of people that were like standing around taking pictures, of course. And then we saw their folks that were down on the beach. And it's probably like, I don't know, like 150 feet down to the beach. It's pretty far. But we saw like the start of a trail and people are down there. We're like, well, if they can get down there, I'm sure we can get down there. And so we like start to go down this trail. And it gets to the point where it's so steep that like we couldn't really turn around and go back. And we're now literally like rock climbing down the face of this cliff. And it was very sketchy. And Ellie, my girlfriend at the time, is not my fiance, her like foot slipped and I like caught her on the cliffside. And she was like falling in tears, like thought she was gonna die. And it's like this very scarring, memorable experience. And after that, my thought was like, all right, if I ever proposed to her, it needs to be here to like put a positive spin on this experience and like have it be a very like good memorable spot, not a bad memorable spot. And that was like always the plan. And so we were visiting 
family back in California uh, over like December for the Christmas holiday. And we knew we were going to be driving that route. So it's like, all right, this is, this is the opportunity I need to pull over there. And yeah, I had like the ring waiting. My, my mom and her husband were like sitting there hiding, waiting. And Ellie, my fiance's parents were there hiding as well. Like everyone's tucked away and proposed there. And yeah, it was, it was a good experience. That is so sweet and so romantic. I love that you recruited the photographer. Like that was the one thing I wish for my proposal. Someone took a picture, but we were in Costa Rica and didn't know anybody. So he's off the hook. What are your favorite uh, places to snowboard? You're in like the dreamland for snowboarding in Colorado, right? I know it's pretty good out here. I mean, Eldora is just so close. It's like 30, 35 minutes from Boulder. So can wake up, do a half day and then come back for lunch, which is super fun and like just so accessible. I actually love Taos, which is, you know, over in your neck of the woods. Yeah. There's so many different shoots that you can hike up to and then ski down. It's, it's really challenging steep terrain, but it's super fun. Also Mammoth, like Mammoth just has my heart because that's where I'd go during college. Like every other weekend we drive five and a half hours from Santa Barbara to Mammoth and go snowboarding at Mammoth for the weekend. It's just like such a fun, large mountain, especially if like if folks are familiar with it, if you're like out on the backside off of like chair 12 or 13, it's like just untouched powder that no one goes to. It's super fun. It's like an old like two person chair that's back there. Yep. You're speaking to my favorite I grew up snowboarding obviously as a child of the southwest or not snowboarding skiing I shouldn't say that but my husband absolutely loves snowboarding so um he's been looking for a buddy if you ever want to go this winter is there anything else that you want to tell the audience at home I mean we're hiring like crazy so if <gasps> yeah. you the crowd campaign we have an office in Portland and another one that's in Boulder Portland Oregon not Maine but yeah we we're hiring kind of across all departments especially engineering we're looking for senior engineers that are full stack. So if anyone wants to join the company, um, come hit me up. I love it. Where can people find you? So people can email me at rborn, B-O-R-N at cloudcampaign.io. Direct email address. Impressive. I like it. Well, you heard it here. Lots of hiring going on. Any other roles outside of engineers? Yeah, pretty much across the board. Um, So we're hiring a content marketer. We're hiring two outbound BDRs for sales. We're hiring a customer success manager. I think that's it for now. That puts us like right around 30, which is where we're projected to end the year. So yeah, that's going to be a very full office once we get everyone hired. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Having a conversation with you is a total blast. And I have to say, you know, total plug. I use Ryan's tool. I recommend it. Check out the link in the show notes if you are interested in automating and outsourcing your social media, because if you're starting a business or if you're just somebody busy who's trying to create a personal brand, there's nothing like taking that extra layer of work out of your busy workday. So thank you so much, Ryan, for creating a tool that is so useful, not only to agencies and businesses, but even for personal brands. So it was a pleasure to have you on the show. What did you learn today? I learned so much specifically around how to not only bootstrap a business, but maybe even collect funding. The true thank you goes to you. Thank you for tuning into this episode. It's always a real pleasure to have you. I really appreciate you watching. If you're watching this, it means you made it to the end. So comment something funny below like beaver. So I know that you made it to the end and I'll send you a special prize. As always, if you haven't yet, please smash that like button and hit subscribe so you never miss another episode. Next week's guest is 
totally amazing. It's going to be super epic. You're not going to want to miss it. So stay tuned. Tune in. I'll see you there next week on soon to be called Invested Success. (laughs) 